How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, to gain insight into how you have worked in history and what you have done in order to provide salvation for the human race. Father, this time we pray especially for our nation, for continued strength and resolve during this war against terrorism, that you would give us uh, clarity, that you would give our leaders a clear vision of what they need to do, that you would destroy the, the plots and foil the plans of the enemy. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, make it possible for us to send out and support missionaries. And we pray especially for those that we support from this local congregation, especially Chafer Seminary. Continue to pray, continue to provide for them financially. We also pray for them as they begin the new semester and that you would uh, just uh, make this a profitable time for their professors and their student body and that they may be able to focus on their task in preparation for future ministry. Father, we pray for us this evening as we study your word that we might be challenged by the things that we study as we begin our work on Abraham. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now tonight I'm going to do one of those overview messages where we're going to look at the life of Abraham, which is given in the scriptures from Roughly 11.27, Genesis 11.27 down through Genesis 25.11. The only person in the, in the book of Genesis who gets more space, at least in terms of chapters, is Joseph, and they're almost tied. So we see just uh, under the law of proportionality that God the Holy Spirit spends the vast amount of his time in Genesis on Abram. This shows how important Abram is to Scripture, to history, and to salvation. So we're going to cover this in in one night, and it's important to do that because most people don't ever take the time to, to, to overview and to really come to understand these things. And I would challenge you to take the time to just sit down and read Abram. Read through about Abraham from Genesis 11 through Genesis 25. Now, one note here, we have about 14 chapters, or about 13 and a, actually about 13 and a half chapters, covering Abraham. It's taken me 65 lessons to get through the first 11 chapters. I don't think it'll take that long to get through Abraham, because the, the, while the book slows down and focusing on one individual... It moves more like a narrative. There's not, uh, it moves so rapidly in Genesis 1 through 11, you have to stop and fill in a lot of blanks, as it were. But you don't hear, and in narrative literature, you don't teach it like you teach uh, epistolary literature. In other words, you don't sit down and you deal with every single word. There are places when you do, but uh, not in every single place. So probably won't take uh, a year and a half or two years to work through uh, Abraham. Now, if we want to get an outline and just an overview of Abraham, we, have, we can divide it into four parts here. The first part is a prelude, brief prelude in 1127 down through the end of the chapter, which is verse 32. 11.27 to 32 is the prelude. The second, and this is a major section, we'll call the preparation for the promised seed. Preparation for the promised seed. 
And that covers 12, 1, down through uh, chapter 15, or the end of chapter 15. Fifteen twenty one. Twelve one to fifteen twenty one. Then the next major division is the provision of the promised seed. And that's from sixteen one down through the end of chapter uh, I believe it's chapter twenty one. Twenty two. Twenty two twenty four. From sixteen one to twenty two. 24. Then we have the epilogue. In the epilogue, in chapter 23, we have the death of Sarah. Chapter 24, we have the finding of a wife for Isaac. And that focuses on the uh, perpetuation of the seed. In chapter 25, we have the death of Abraham. So we have prelude, 11.27-32, then the preparation for the promise seed, 12.1-15.21, the provision of the promise seed, 16.1-22.24, and then an epilogue in chapters 23-25. to So let's just look at some brief introductory principles before we start our overview. First point. As we get into the life of Abraham, we see that God shifts from working through all of mankind as a whole to working through one man and then his descendants. Up to this point, God has worked through the entire human race, but now he is going to focus on one man. He excludes everyone else in the human race because the human race has rebelled against God, as we've seen in our study of Genesis 11 as represented in the Tower of Babel, they're in uh, complete negative volition. They're into idolatry. They have rejected God. And so God now uh, selects one man, Abram, and through him he is going to now deal with the rest of the human race. So he shifts from working with mankind, from, from mankind in general, to working with one human being and his descendants. Point number two, this demonstrates God's determination to bless mankind despite human rebellion. No matter how negative man gets, no matter how rebellious the human race becomes, God shows His fortitude, His determination to bless man. This is grace. And so we're already introduced to the fact that grace will be a major theme, just as it is throughout Scripture. In fact, if we look at Scripture, and especially the narrative portions of Scripture, as we would a novel... Even though we talk about Abraham and Isaac and, and other places, there's, there's David, there's Isaiah, there's Elijah, and these seem to be the human hero. The hero in biblical narrative is always God. God's the hero, and God always works through grace. So we see God's determination to bless man, and there's an emphasis here. Blessing becomes the dominant theme, whereas In the first 11 chapters, because you keep having human rebellion, the cursing or divine discipline on the human race for sin has been a dominant theme. The fall was cursing and divine discipline. Uh, The flood was cursing divine discipline. Tower of Babel, the scatter of of, uh, the peoples, that was divine discipline. But now there will be a shift to blessing. Emphasis on grace. Third point. What we see in each of these men in this second part of the book, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, what we see in each of them is the constant struggle for the believer to operate on divine viewpoint instead of human viewpoint, arrogance, and autonomy. See, this is the struggle that each one has. You see this again and again in Abram. Despite what God has promised him, despite the blessing of God, despite... God's personal appearance to Abram on numerous occasions, Abram still tries to live his life, solve his problems apart from God. And this continues to be a problem and to plague the nation and will, of course, in the nation Israel later on. But we see in these men uh, the constant struggle 
that the believer has against uh, the desire to live independently of God and to be arrogant. Fourth point, in Abraham we see a progression in spiritual growth before he receives the promised blessing. Everything moves towards that promised blessing in the seed of Abraham. That's the focal point of the promise. The blessing to all men ultimately comes through the seed, which of course uh, Paul will interpret as the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the immediate context, the promised seed focuses on on Isaac. And Isaac is the funnel through which that blessing that God promises will come. But before Abraham receives the promise, he's got to be mature enough to have the capacity to handle the promise. And that same thing is true for you and for me. We have to be mature enough to handle the blessings that God gives us or he won't uh, distribute them. And so Abram has to go through many tests and training uh, procedures before God finally, at the age of a hundred, when Abraham is a hundred, before God finally uh, brings about his promise in the birth of Isaac. Now the fifth point focuses on doctrinal themes. Let me review the first four points. God, first point, God shifts from working with mankind in general to one individual and his descendants. The second point was that this shows God's determination to bless man despite human rebellion. There's a shift in emphasis to blessing rather than divine discipline. Emphasis on grace. The call of Abraham is a sign of God's grace to the entire human race. Third, there's a struggle for the believer represented here. The struggle that the believer has with cosmic thinking, as we've seen, this develops out of the Tower of Babel with the problem of acting independently of God and in arrogance. Fourth point, in Abraham we see that there's a progression in spiritual growth that must take place before he receives the promised blessing. Now, what are some of the doctrines that are emphasized here? This is the key thing. These events aren't just told us because we need to know about Abraham. He was a nice guy. had some interesting things happen to him. And these make for some wonderful stories around the campfire at night. No, there are crucial doctrines that are taught through the life of Abraham. And these need to be brought out, especially in teaching and prep school. These are great uh, lessons to learn and instances to use to teach the more abstract doctrines that you find in the New Testament. First of all, we have doctrines related to salvation. There are three doctrines related to salvation exemplified in the life of Abraham. First of all, there's regeneration. This comes through the fact that Sarah is barren. It's impossible for him, for her to give birth, and uh, Abraham himself is sexually dead, and yet God regenerates them. He brings life where there is death, and that's the picture. Again and again we see in the Old Testament this, this picture through the barren woman. Abra, uh, Sarah, uh, Rebecca, uh, Rachel, uh, the three wives of the patriarchs are all barren. Well, why is that? Because God's teaching a principle that he is the one who brings life where there is death, just as he brings spiritual life where there is spiritual death. Justification. Paul develops this in Romans 4, also in Galatians 4. We have the emphasis from Abraham on justification by faith alone. Abraham is the Old Testament picture of justification by faith alone. So we understand that through Abraham. Also, we see substitutionary atonement. And this comes in Genesis 22, when Abraham is to take Isaac up on the uh, mountains of Moriah. And there he is to sacrifice Isaac, the promised seed, to God. And God, at the last minute, stays his hand and provides a substitute through the ram that's caught in the, caught in the bushes up there by the altar. So that's a picture of substitutionary atonement. And then in Abraham, we also have the perhaps the greatest example in Scripture of the life of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And Abraham is a picture of that faith-rest-drill life, both in terms of a couple of failures as well as success. He is the picture of the faith-rest-drill, but he is also a picture 
of the personal sense of eternal destiny. And this is seen in Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. There we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. See, this is the emphasis all through Hebrews 11, 8 through 19 of Abraham's faith, the operation of his faith rest drill. But that operation of the faith rest drill as he matured was oriented toward that future destiny. Because we're told in verse 9, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, he is looking forward to that promise that God has. He is focusing on the future, the future reality which changed his present life. We also see in verse uh, 14 of Hebrews 11, For those who say such things, that is, relating to Abraham, declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared, prepared a city for them. That is that focus of their personal sense of an eternal destiny. So Abraham functions as an example of the faith of the spiritual life in terms of the faith rest drill and personal sense of an eternal destiny. And then a centerpiece throughout the life of Abraham is the covenant that God enters into with Abraham. This is crucial. It's foundational to the rest of the Old Testament. It's foundational to all of human history ever since then. You cannot understand and interpret human history, past history or present history, or the future if you do not understand the Abrahamic covenant. Any element of human history. Because what this tells us is that human history turns on God's plan for the descendants of Israel. Everything in history turns on God's plan for for Israel. And even though we are living in the church age, this does not mean that God has replaced and permanently cast away Israel. In fact, that's the, the subject of Paul's discourse in Romans chapter 11, that God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. He has a future plan and purpose for them, and that will be to fulfill the promises made in this covenant that He made with, it, with Abraham approximately uh, 2,000 B.C. It was a little more than that, about 20. 50 B.C., but just approximation. So we have the Abrahamic Covenant, and there are three elements to the Abrahamic Covenant. By the time we get through with this, you will be sick of this. Every time you think of the Abrahamic Covenant, you should think land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. And if you understand the concepts of the land and the seed and the blessing, then you understand what's going on in this context because God promises Abraham that it is through his seed that he will bless the whole world, but his descendants have to have a place, and that's the land. And we see six distinct times, at least six distinct times in these uh, 14 chapters where God promises a specific piece of real estate to Abraham. And at least 20 times, maybe more, I haven't finished counting them all up, but at least 20 times between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50, God promises this specific piece of real estate to Abraham, reiterates it to Isaac, reconfirms it to Jacob, and makes that covenant with them and their descendants forever. This is profound in light of things that are happening today both in terms of politics and in terms of theological aberration. God has not gone back on His promise. He has not cast away His people and that He has given that land to them. So there is a land where the seed will dwell to be a blessing to all mankind. And then in this section of Genesis, we get a particular look at who God is. 
when we started Genesis, uh, I don't know, some 18, 19 months ago, in the second lesson, I went through what we learn about God from, from Genesis. And I outlined a number of names of God that we are introduced to in the book of Genesis. And most of them, not all of them, Yahweh, Elohim, uh, Yahweh, Elohim are, are names that are introduced earlier. But there are, there are five names or six names or titles for God that are introduced in the Abrahamic story. Six names, three outside of this, six in this. He's called God the most, the Lord God most high, El Elyon, in Genesis 14, 18 uh, through 22. It's repeated four times. El Elyon, which emphasizes the exalted, exalted status of God. It was the sin of Lucifer to desire to be like the most high God. He is called El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth, emphasizing his sovereignty, that he is the one who rules the heavens and the earth. Secondly, he is called the God who sees in Genesis 16:13. The God who sees El Ra'i. This is uh, emphasizing the fact that he knows the future because he is the God who controls history. The third name that's used here is El Shaddai. El Shaddai in Genesis 17.1 and Genesis 35.11. God the Almighty. This title is used 48 times in the Old Testament, most often or most frequently in Job. El Shaddai. In Genesis 21.3, he's called El Elyom, the everlasting God, the eternal God, emphasizing the fact that he has neither beginning nor end. El Olam, the God of eternity, the eternal God. Fifth, he is called Yahweh Yireh, or as it was written in the old King James, Jehovah Jireh. Maybe you learned it that way. Yahweh Yireh. We'll just put it up this way. Y I R E H. And it means the Lord provides, the Lord supplies. As we learn from the New Testament, God's grace is sufficient for all our needs, and He shall supply everything for us in abundance. And this is first seen clearly and taught in Genesis 22:14, when God supplies a substitute for Isaac. And then sixth, He's called Yahweh. Elohim Hashemayim. Yahweh Elohim Hashemayim, the God of the heavens. Yahweh, the God of the heavens, that He is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. So what we learn about God is crucial in our study of Abraham. Well, let's look at what happens in our story of Abraham. We begin in Genesis 11:27 down to the end of the chapter in verse 32 with the family background. Of Abraham, it is the Toledot. We've gone through the fact that there are ten Toledots, or, ge- or sections in Genesis. That should be translated. This is the genealogy, or these are the records of Terah. This is what happened to Terah's descendants. We don't have a Toledot of Abram; it's his father. This is what happened to Terah's descendants, and we learn that Terah had three sons: Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran has a son, Lot, but he dies at an early age. And apparently Lot is given to Abram to bring him up. So we're introduced to the main characters. Abram is a name that means uh, noble father. Noble father. From the root Av, A-B, the B is pronounced like a V, Av meaning father. It's a Hebrew for father. It means mighty or noble father, and it has the idea that that uh, his father was perhaps making a statement about himself that he came from a noble lineage, from aristocracy. And we know from our study of Abraham that he is one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. Incredible wealth. This is a real slam in the face of a lot of Christian socialists. Maybe you didn't know that, but there are a lot of Christians who get sucked into this kind of socialistic mentality that, that we should just give up everything for God and, and walk around as beggars and, and we should just uh, 
hold everything in common. But that's not what the Bible emphasizes. The Bible emphasizes there's a value to personal property and personal possessions, and people have a right to personal possessions and the accumulation of wealth. And Abraham was one of the wealthiest men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, and Joseph were all extremely wealthy men. Job was one of the wealthiest men. In his world, he was probably as wealthy as Bill Gates is in our world. So the Bible does not... Uh, look down upon personal wealth and possessions. So Abram was of an aristocratic family, a family of nobility from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is located down in southern Mesopotamia, not too far from modern uh, Kuwait, up in southern part of Iraq, uh, modern Iraq. And this was Ur of the Chaldeans. And he... And his family were from there. And the entire culture of, of this southern Mesopotamian area Sumer, uh, was, was called Sumer at the time. The people by the Sumerians. The people of Sumer were a very advanced cu- culture. They wrote. They performed advanced mathematical calculations. They uh, had a number of architectural innovations. They were an advanced people. You know, you don't see this evolutionary mentality that they just sort of like gradually getting better and better. They just spring on the scene and they've got a tremendously advanced culture and technology. But they were enmeshed in idolatry, particularly the worship of the moon god who was known as Sin. We spell it S-I-N like sin, but it would be pronounced Sin. And this was the moon god. And while we know from Scripture that Abram's family knew about Yahweh and worshipped Yahweh, they also were heavenly involved in idolatry. They had compromised, they assimilated, and they were not devoted completely or exclusively to Yahweh. But apparently once God called Abram, that sort of had an impact on them and, and brought them out. So they live in Sumer. Sometime between the period of the Gudian invasion, which was approximately 2200 B.C., and the rise of the third dynasty of Ur, Ur III, which was somewhere around uh, 2000 to 2100 B.C. I'm still doing a tremendous amount of research on this issue of dating. And it's, it's just not certain. It depends on who you read, where the dates fall. And the problem that I wanted, I want to avoid is identifying for sure who the people were that were surrounded Abram. Because if we don't know for sure, and I get off teaching you that it was the Gudeans, and it's not, and then we have a problem. Or if we tie it to Ur 3, then we got another problem. You see, there's a real discrepancy. In fact, some people think that Ur 3 really didn't start until about 1950 B.C., when Abraham was well out of the land, in fact, almost dead. And Abraham is born about 2166 B.C. So uh, we're not sure, and uh, scholarly sources that I'm reading and consulting uh, vary in their dates. So this is the problem with ancient history. You may not realize it, but there's no date. There's no date older than about 750 B.C. that scholars completely agree on. You get beyond that. I'm talking about outside the Bible. You get beyond that, and there's, there's scholars just don't agree. They're using the same dating methodologies in archaeology that they use in evolution. So therein lies a major problem. So we're, just, we're going to deal with some of this as we get into Abraham, but we won't, we won't cover it now. So this is the background. And we know from his family that he's married. And he is married to a woman named Sarai. Now I've heard that that, in fact I was listening to some TV preacher. The That's okay, everybody does that at least once. Uh, I've heard, in fact I heard a TV preacher say this just the other day, that Sarai meant contentious. I have sought and looked at almost every Hebrew lexicon that I can consult in commentaries, and they agree to a man that it means my princess. 
or queen. It does not mean contentious. It means uh, princess. And when it is termed changed later to Sarah, this is an intensified form of that name for princess. So it indicates that both Abraham and Sarah are nobility. And this would fit that Sarah is actually Abram's half-sister. They have a different, uh, I believe they have a different uh, mother, but the same father. So they are half, this is why Abram gets away later on with his half-lie, which is still a lie, that she's his sister. Anyhow, the the genealogy or the, the Toledot ends here with saying that, with the note that Sarai, was barren. See, that's the focal point. You go through the family, everything, but what's the point? The point's that last verse in verse 30. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. See, this is the end of the line for Terah. This is what happened to his descendants, but the Heron her, her, um, uh, dies, and Sarai is barren. It's the end of the line. So this is the point that we're learning here is that God is going to bring life where there is death. Moses makes this point right up front. We have to recognize that Sarah is barren. This provides the framework for understanding why God has to provide this seed and why this is such a a, a miracle event. Verse 31 following, we're told that that, um, Terah takes his family, Abram, Sarai, Lot, and they head to the city of Haran, where they will live. And Terah dies when he's 205 years of age. Actually, Abram isn't born until, uh, until uh, Terah is, is 140 years old. It says that verse um, earlier that he lived, to be, lived 70 years before he began to have children in verse 26. But the last one born, apparently, is Abram. He's not born until uh, Terah's 200 and, I mean, 140. And the reason we know that is because right after uh, Terah dies, Abraham leaves to go to Canaan, and he's 75 years old. So it's just a simple uh, matter of subtraction. Then in chapter 12, we're introduced to the promise of the seed, and Abraham has to be prepared for the coming of the seed. So I've entitled this section from chapters 12 through 15, these four chapters, The Preparation for the, for the Seed. Preparation for the Seed. We have the divine call and the preview to the Abrahamic covenant given in the first three verses. The Lord calls Abram and tells him to get out of his country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. That's an imperative. There are two commands here. Get out of your country and be a blessing. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at these three verses, blessing is mentioned five times, cursing is mentioned two times. This shows the shift in the emphasis in the book from blessing to I mean, to blessing from uh, cursing. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So Abraham is to follow this command. And then God says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Actually, there's two different words used for cursing here. One is the word kalal, which means to treat someone with disrespect or to treat them lightly. The other word is the word to cut them off from blessing. It's a much stronger word. And the second word is the word arur. That's the word that was used back in Genesis chapter 3 for the consequences of sin. And what this second, uh, this blessing statement in verse 3, the way it should be translated is, those who treat you lightly, I will curse harshly. Those who treat you lightly, I will curse harshly. This is God's statement of divine protection for the seed. God's statement of divine protection for the seed, for the descendants of Abraham and the provision and the, for, against anti-Semitism. Anyone who gets involved in anti-Semitism is digging a grave for themselves. God is going to bring 
tremendous discipline against any people or any nation or any individual that gets involved in anti-Semitic activity. So here we have the divine call. God calls Abram to go out. And actually, it is a reference back to what God had said to Abraham before they left Ur of the Chaldees. Abram, as we'll see, was already a believer, and God called him out. And at that point, the family began to move out. Now, uh, it's interesting that God says to leave his family, but he takes his family with him, and he stops off in Haran for a while before terror dies, slows him down a little bit. So he's got to learn to obey God. It's only partial obedience. That's like most of us. We start off believing God, but it's only partial. So he's still somewhat of a baby believer involved in not in incomplete obedience. And then when he leaves Terah, he's got Lot in tow. And what we see is that God eventually is going to have to remove Lot from Abraham so that Abraham is finally isolated from his family because it is through Abraham that God is going to be uh, that God is going to provide blessing and he needs to get these worldly influences away from the promised seed. So Abram obeys God, and in verse 4 of the 12th chapter, we read that, that Abram leaves and he goes down to Canaan. And he goes down to Canaan, and we follow his, we can follow his uh, steps on the map. First he goes to uh, Shechem, which is in the uh, central part of Israel. And this becomes a major place. It's a major place in the life of Isaac. Uh, all through the history of Israel, Shechem is a significant location. And from Shechem, he goes a little further south to a place located between uh, Bethel and Ai. Now, I'm going to redo this map so you can see those letters a little better. But he goes down to the place between Bethel and Ai. And here, or at, at Shechem rather, at Shechem, God appears to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. This is the first promise related to the real estate. I will give this land, and there uh, Abram builds an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Then he moves from there to the mountain east of Bethel, pitches his tent there. That means he establishes his dwelling place there for a short time, and builds another altar to Yahweh. And at this stage, what Abraham is doing is he is marking off the parameters of the land. This is the land that God's given him. And he's beginning to claim it by faith as he goes through the land. And then he journeys further south, down to Hebron and on into the Negev, which is south of Beersheba. Now notice how just this morning, both Hebron and Beersheba were in the news because of violence erupting there in, in Israel. And he goes down to the Negev, but then a famine comes into the land. Now, this is his first test. The famine is in the land. The land is the place of blessing. The land is the place of promise. And what happens? Abraham decides he's going to solve problems his own way. See, this is the way most of us are. We hit a problem. We decide we're going to use a little human viewpoint to solve the problem rather than to stay put and trust Christ. And this is what Abram does. He decides that he's going to solve the problem. There's plenty of food down in Egypt. So rather than staying put in the land God promised where God could provide for him, he heads down to Egypt. And while he's there, he knows that he may have his life threatened because he's got this good-looking wife. And he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to uh, uh, steal him or kill him so that he can steal Sarah. So he decides he's going to solve that problem through lying. So Abram gets into a pickle here because of his carnality. He's not trusting God, so he's got to learn a few things. He's going to create another problem here that shows up later on. He's going to pick up a slave named Hagar, an Egyptian woman who's a descendant of Ham. So we have to go back and understand the difference between the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember, the Egyptians, the Mitzrayim, were descendants of Ham. So he's going to pick up this Egyptian slave girl that will create problems down through history because she is going to be the mother of Ishmael. Okay, then finally he returns back to the land in chapter 15. So he gets, or chapter 13, he's back in fellowship. He goes up from Egypt with his wife and all that he had. Now one of the interesting things to, that we'll study here is that when Abram goes down there, 
he's treated by Pharaoh like royalty. He's not just some traveling merchant, some camel jockey that happens to wander into Memphis. He has tremendous wealth. And when he shows up with with Sarai, Pharaoh gives him all kinds of of gifts and all kinds of, of riches. And then when he leaves, we're told in chapter 13, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So he goes back up into this area, into the center part of the land between Bethel and Ai, and there he establishes his dwelling. Now, as far as I can tell, at this stage, working through the chronology, this just covers a few months, maybe six months to a year at the most. And he has tremendous possessions. In fact, he has so much wealth, and there's so many servants that work for him. He has so many employees that have to take care of all of his herds of sheep and goats and camel and cattle and all of his possessions and everything, That uh, as well as Lot. Lot's a wealthy man. He, he must have inherited wealth from his father, and he's wealthy, and they ju- there's just not enough room for them together in the land. So Abram says, we have to divide things up. So he shows he's got grace orientation. As a young believer, he's got grace orientation. He says, Lot, pick out the land that you want. All this land, take what you want. Now remember, God's already promised Abram the land. But here he is giving it away to Lot. But Lot chooses to go down by the cities in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're told that that area was like the garden of the Lord at that time. So we'll point out a few things there that indicate that the geography and the climate was a little different at this time. It says that it was it was well watered everywhere, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. Now the only time Egypt gets well watered is right along the Nile. But this, is, this indicates that, that Egypt was considered a very fertile green area at the time. Now, according to um, the studies, the models that um, um, Michael Oward has developed with the Institute for Creation Research, if uh, according to his uh, models of the Ice Age, you were still having the Ice Age taking place at this time. Remember, we're only about 300, 300 400 years maybe about 400 years from the flood. So the ice ages are taking place, which means you've got ice coming down from the north, but that temporal band around the equator is going to be much more uh, livable. It's not going to be dry and arid like it is now. So, you, but, but climate's changing rapidly. In fact, three times in the book of Genesis, you have these incredible famines that take place in the land. And the only place where the people can find fertile land and, and, and deliverance is to head down to Egypt. Okay, so Abram divides with, with Lot in chapter 13. And this sets up the situation in chapter 14 when Abram has to, uh, has to deliver this, the cities of the valley down by the Dead Sea, the Valley of Sedim, the Salt Sea, from this uh, conquest by the four kings under the domination of Keterleomer in chapter 14. And so what we see here is Abram functioning as a blessing. He is functioning as a blessing to his neighbor. So he's fulfilling that command to be a blessing. And Lot has separated from him. And we're told that for a period of 14 years, this area came under the domination of the uh, the kings from the east. And so they invade at this time and they take many people captive. They uh, pillage and plunder down along the river Jordan and down into the Dead Sea area and they uh, destroy their homes and they uh, take a lot of people captives and they take a lot of, steal a lot of, of uh, wealth and they head off. So Abram, at the end, when he hears that, that Lot has been taken captive. He arms his 318 trained servants. King James says servants. He's got his own private army. He is a wealthy man. I mean, he has an entourage 
a well-trained military entourage of 318. So he takes his private army, a lot like Ross Perot did back in the 80s when he went into uh, Iran to rescue his employees. He takes his 318 and he goes in pursuit to the north as far as Dan. Now let me see if I've got Dan on the map. Dan is actually just north of where this map ends. And then just north of Dan is, is uh, Beersheba, I mean not Beersheba, Damascus. And these are the parameters for the land that God is giving him. So you see, Abram is moving throughout the extent of the land from the, from the river of Egypt, which is the, uh, uh, this wadi down here, uh, to, uh, where I'm indicating on the marker to the south, uh, west of Beersheba, all the way up to Damascus and the Euphrates. And so Abraham is showing his control over this area. He is uh, exercising as a blessing in this land that God's given him. And when he finishes, he's going to be a blessing to Melchizedek. He comes back to Salem, which is Jerusalem, which is located about 20 miles south of Hebron here. And he is going to give a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, as a blessing to Melchizedek. Then in chapter 15, God is going to enter into a covenant with him, and, and it's a restatement of the promised seed, a restatement of the promised seed. And in this section, in chapter 15, God is going to emphasize the provision of an heir, the promise of an heir, and this relates to the promised of a seed. So Abram's been a blessing in the previous chapters, and in the first uh, part of chapter 15, God not only promises the seed, but that it would come from Abram. It would not be through uh, his servant Eliezer. And in chapter 15, verse 6, we have the key verse on justification. And he believed in Yahweh. And he accounted it, that is Yahweh accounted it or imputed it to him for righteousness. And this particular verse should not be translated as a simple past, which makes it sound like it occurred at this moment. Abram was already a believer. Uh, This is in the Hebrew an imperfect tense verb of the verb aman, and it should be translated as a perfect tense. He had already believed. It's a reminder. Verse 6 is stating the fact that the reason God is blessing Abraham in this way is because Abraham was already a possessor of perfect righteousness. God cannot bless those who do not possess perfect righteousness, and God's blessing is based on his possession of imputed righteousness. So he is going to um, provide a seed, and then he reminds Abraham who he is. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this what? This land to inherit. You can't separate the seed from the land. And so God is going to make a provision. And in the rest of the chapter, there is a reiteration that God is going to give this land to Abram and to his descendants. But not yet, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete in verse 16. So that shows the preparation for the seed. Abram is ready, but he hadn't learned all his lessons yet. Chapter 16 through 22 gives us the story of the provision of the seed. And first of all, in chapter 16, we have the birth of the pseudo-seed, the false seed. Sarai convinces Abram that, well, this really isn't going to happen, so let's you, you go into my handmaiden, Hagar. Now, this sounds like a weird practice to us. But this was typical. It was attested to in the law codes of Hammurabi that if uh, an individual, could, uh, a wife, could not have children, then the husband could take her slave girl as a wife and her children would be raised up as the children of the wife. So this is, once again, using a human viewpoint solution to the problem. See, you had a human viewpoint solution earlier to the problem of famine in the land. Now you've got a human viewpoint solution in relation to the promise of the seed. And so they're going to try to do it the way the culture does it. And once again, God is showing that they have to be distinct from the culture. You don't do it the way the world does it. You divorce yourself from human viewpoint. 
And the problem that we see is that when you use human viewpoint solutions, they compound the problems, create difficulties, and that's exactly what happens. So Ishmael, be, I mean, uh, Hagar becomes pregnant, and she becomes despised in the eye, I mean, uh, Sarah becomes despised or ridiculed. She's actually, it's that same word, kalel, that we have for, for lightweight or light cursing or being treated lightly or with disrespect back in the, uh, in Genesis 12.3. But the interesting thing here, I just skimmed over it, is that uh, Sarah says to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. It's the same structure you have in Genesis 3. See, in Genesis 3, Eve said, Here, see the fruit? It's good. Take and eat. Now, Sarah's saying the same thing. Here, see my handmaiden? Take her. It's the same, it's a parallel construction. The author wants us to understand that this is as much of a fall for Abram as eating the fruit was a fall for Adam. And this is going to bring tremendous negative consequences down through history. Well, as a result of that, you now have contention between Sarai and Hagar. And so Abram tells Sarai to leave, and she leaves, but the angel of the Lord finds her. This is God's grace. Even in the midst of all of this disobedience, we see that God still treats us in grace, and he is going to protect Hagar because she has been treated, uh, treated poorly, treated wrongly by Abraham, uh, by Abram and Sarai at this point. And he promises her that she would have many, many descendants, but that she is supposed to return back to live with uh, Sarai and Abram. And she says she's, and he tells her that she's going to have a child, a son, that should be called Ishmael, which means God hears because God heard her cry of affliction when she was running away. But there's the promise, the foreboding of verse 12. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And this is particularly true today in a time of terrorism. You see, Ishmael is one of the progenitors of the modern Arabs. Now, what's interesting is Ishmael's half Egyptian. He's uh, a descendant of Shem on Abraham's side, but a descendant of Ham on his mother's side. But he will take an Egyptian wife. So this shows the, how the lines from Ham, Shem, and Japheth are beginning to mix. In chapter 17 and 18, we have two more statements of the Abrahamic covenant. In chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, God appears to Abram reminds him that he is the Almighty God and the one who will provide a seed. He reiterates the covenant with Abram and changes his name to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. And once again reiterates the promise of a seed, that I will make you exceedingly uh, fruitful. Nations and kings will come from you. Now that's not part of the Abrahamic covenant. That just means that that he is going to have many kings come from him. And nations too. Ishmael will produce nations. Others, Esau, will also produce nations, but they're not in the godly line. And God says that he will establish his covenant with Abraham and will give him the land. So he reiterates these key elements, land, seed, and blessing. But in chapter 17, he gives them the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And he would enter into an everlasting covenant with all of his descendants. Again, the emphasis is on the seed and the provision of the seed and the descendants to Abraham. And then in chapter 18, we have the uh, birth uh, given. This is at the oak trees of the terebinth trees of Mamre down by Hebron. He's moved down. In fact, in most of all of this time, from the time he's 86... From the time he's 86 at the time of the episode with, with Lot and the kings uh, and, and the time of the birth of Ishmael until now. So for 14 years he's living down here at Hebron. Actually, uh, not long after he moved back to Beth, between Bethel and Ai in chapter 
13, he moves down here. So he lives here almost permanently. He's not this sort of Bedouin traveler. He's got too many possessions. He's planted uh, down here in the area around Hebron, and that's, that's his location. And he's out there sitting in the tent of the door uh, waiting, and three men come to him. Now, this tells us a lot about angelology. But again, there is a promise of the seed that Sarah would give birth, and this is when she laughs. And this is when God says, well, Sarah's laughing, so we'll just name this child Laughter. We'll call him Yitzhak, Laughter. And God promises that he would return, and at the appointed time, Sarah would give birth to a son. Now, this is a tremendous miracle. She's, she's uh, 90, Abram's going to be 100. But God brings life into the womb. Now, I am not a medical doctor, and I haven't had the time to go through and sit down with an uh, OB-GYN to go through the details here. But once a woman goes through menopause, the uterus basically dries up all of the uh, circulatory uh, system that's there to provide nutrition to the uh, fetus dries up and disappears, and, all, and the elasticity of the, of the uterus disappears and of the abdominal lining disappears. So there's a, there's a lot more than just not having an ovum there to fertilize. There's just a, a whole physiology that has broken down and has virtually died. So what God does here is just a phenomenal miracle so that she, uh, at, you know, 15 or 20 years past the childbearing age, now becomes pregnant. Abraham is given uh, sexual life. She has sexual life, and they are uh, able to procreate and have a child. But beforehand, God's got to do one more thing to protect the seed. That means he's got to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of their depravity. See, Sodom and Gomorrah aren't judged simply because they're depraved, simply because of their homosexuality and their sexual perversion. That was going on in many other places in the ancient world. So why did God nail Sodom and Gomorrah and not San Francisco? Because the seed, the promised seed, was going to be born 30 miles from Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is going to protect the environment from the perversion of the Sodomites. So there is the judgment pronounced on Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are wiped out and destroyed, and the whole area, the geography is destroyed so that nothing fertile can grow there again. However, we see another principle of blessing applied. For there is blessing of association because of Lot's association with Abraham, because Lot is a believer, God is going to deliver Lot from the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But that deliverance comes because Lot intercedes, I mean, Abraham intercedes with God. Once he finds out what God is going to do, he says, to, he, he argues with God. So will you destroy Sodom if there's a hundred righteous men there, or, or fifty righteous men, or, or forty-five, or only thirty? And so God uh, warn, sends the two angels to warn Lot, and he escapes. Chapter 20, we have another example of God's protection of the seed. Abraham now goes to uh, between Kadesh and Shur and stays in Gerar, which is uh, dominated by an early, early incursion of the Greek sea peoples, the Philistines, and Abimelech. Uh, as he goes there, Abram once again decides to uh, <coughs> hide the true nature of his relationship with Sarah and lies and says she's his sister because he's afraid that Abimelech may just, may just kill him to take Sarah as his wife. He's not trusting God. And God, of course, comes to Abimelech and warns him, and Abimelech finds out the truth. But what's happening is God is protecting Sarah. He's already taken Sarah to put her into his harem, but God has to protect her so there's no sexual intercourse with any other man because it's got to be clear that the seed comes from Abraham and Sarah. And so once again, God continues to providentially care for Abraham and Sarah. And then in chapter 21, finally we have the provision of the seed itself. And Sarah is pregnant, 
and she gives birth to a son. They name him uh, Yitzhak, Laughter. And now there will be problems between him and Ishmael, who's 15 years older. So God now tells Hagar to take Ishmael, and they leave. Once again, God is protecting the seed. So the seed can live in the land unopposed and continue to be the source of blessing. And then as Isaac grows up, we don't know when this occurred, whether he's a teenager, whether he's in his 20s or in his 30s. I think he was an older teen or in his 20s, but that's just uh, my opinion. That God tells Abram, now take your son, your only son, this promised seed you've been waiting for, for 25 years. Take this son... You you waited for him for 25 years. It's been another 15, 20, or 25 years. So Abraham is now at the uh, pinnacle of his spiritual growth. Have you really arrived, Abraham? Can you take your seed that I promise you and apply doctrine to this situation and take him up on the mountain of Moriah and sacrifice him to me? And we know from Hebrews 11 that Abraham knew that even if he took Isaac's life... God was able to raise him from the dead because he knew God promised descendants like the sands of the seashore through this seed. So that shows tremendous faith. Abraham never questioned God. So as he takes Abraham up on the mountains of Moriah, which tradition says is where the temple was later located and where the holy place was located, Abraham stretched out his Hand took the knife to kill his son, and God stayed his hand. And God provided a substitute. And this is a picture of substitutionary atonement. God provides a substitute through the ram that was caught in the uh, branches of the surrounding bushes. And again, God promises, reiterates the promise in verse 18 of chapter 22, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So once again, again and again and again, this emphasis on the seed and the seed is in the land. Then there's an interlude in verses 20 to 23 about the descendants of Nahor. Because, see, that's going to end up in Rebekah. And what we're going to find in chapter 24 is Rebekah will be the bride for Isaac. So God is providing for the perpetuation of the seed. So that covers, up through 22, covers the provision of the Seed of the promised seed, and then in chapters 23 through 25, we get the the epilogue, the closing statements. Sarah dies uh, in chapter 23 at the age of 127. And see, Abram's in the land God's given him, but he doesn't possess enough land to bury her. So he has to purchase land from uh, Ephron the Hittite, where he will bury uh, Sarah at the cave of the field of Machpelah, which is outside of Hebron. And then, in cha- and then he buries her there. And then chapter 24, he sends Eliezer, who must be a well advanced in years by now as well, Eliezer to go find a, a bride for Isaac. So he goes back to the family home place back in Mesopotamia, finds Rebekah, brings her back. She marries Isaac. And Abraham remarries. Not only did he have Ishmael and then Isaac, after he was sexually dead, he has Isaac, but now he is even more prolific. And he, ha- he marries Keturah, and through him has numerous other sons. And these sons are also progenitors of various Arab groups. So what we have when in, in the Middle East is really a fight between the descendants of Abraham. And then he dies. In 25.7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. He breathed out his last and died in a good old age. I think King James said ripe old age. I always liked that. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people and buried in the cave of Machpelah alongside of Sarah. So this is the life of Abraham who's given one of the greatest honors in Scripture. He's called a friend of God. Because of his close walk with the Lord, he goes from spiritual childhood, spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity in the course of these chapters. And we will trace out many doctrines and see many points of application 
as we study the life of Abraham starting next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, get this overview to understand your grace in the life of Abraham and how your grace to Abraham is grace to all of us because we are the recipients of that blessing which came through the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, all the nations, all the peoples are blessed through eternal salvation. We thank you that this salvation is based on your grace and not our works, and that you have done it all. And for this, we praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.